Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss workers going back to their offices and you ask us, what impact does the BBC have on UK politics and how would damaging it affect that? So summer recess is over and MPs are returning to Westminster and there are a number of challenges that they're coming back to. But this week, it seems to be one of the subjects of at the top of everyone's priorities, which is the debate around getting office workers to return to their offices rather than working from home. And we've seen that sort of there's been talk of potentially trying to help companies if if they're worried about being sued by employees who end up um, contracting coronavirus. But generally, it's just sort of ministers trying to express if they can do safely that office workers should return to work. We've spoken about this on the podcast before, and it has kind of been a running subject um, ever since the lockdown measures were originally eased. Why is it that ministers are so enthusiastic for for us to go back to our offices? And and why is it that that's not sort of manifesting itself in people's movements so far? Well, it's kind of twofold, isn't it? The the first is that broadly a large chunk of the kind of leisure industry and indeed a large chunk of, you know, leisure and retail. So everything from, you know, bars to clothes shops to dry cleaners is based around this idea that the average person goes into work in a city centre, works in their city centre for, you know, a certain number of hours, eats in the city centre at at least one of their meals, and then comes back. And then essentially, like, although despite some of the slightly odd commentary to to the contrary, right, although obviously in the long term, right, like, as you've kind of started to see sort of just in one's own neighbourhoods, right, like, although, you know, in the in the kind of long term, like, dry cleaners in residential areas expand, people will, you know, start working in cafes more, right? You're like, all, all of the kind of like, you know, those, those jobs kind of will re, you know, kind of, to use a very London-centric example, zone one's jobs will kind of reallocate themselves to zone three and zone two. As I say, if you're any government, but I think actually particularly if you're this one, where I think it is hard to understate or underestimate the extent to which, like, this is a political project built around going to people, there are no trade-offs, there is no pain. Everything is fluffy kittens. Spending can rise, taxes can fall, debt can shrink as a share of GDP. So I think it is, broadly, the underlying thing is this is a government almost laboratory designed to be unable 
to stomach or really weather the idea of a period in which, yeah, to take like a very current example, right? The sad loss of, you know, the best part of 3,000 jobs in Pret, and we know that there will be more to come in in other organisations of that kind, right? Now, this is, I think, a government that is almost uniquely badly placed to kind of go, well, it's fine because those 3,000 jobs will be more than recreated elsewhere, partly because they don't like short-term pain, partly because there's so much built up in the idea that universal credit has to be a miserable experience than like the the lever that makes this politically and sort of personally weatherable is one that it's almost like, oh no, we can't touch that. And I think that all of that kind of psychological backdrop is is why we have this slightly weird situation of like the Conservative Party has decided that it thinks the worst thing in the world is for commuters, right? Commuters, right? A class of people who predominantly voted Conservative in the lot. Yeah, like, thinks that it's the worst thing in the world for commuters to go, actually, I'll, I'll save my money and I will commute in intermittently from, you know, Isha, Surrey, Withington, Hazelgrove, wherever you, well, yeah, wherever you want to name, Vale of Glamorgan. And no, it's not, in, it's not for big businesses or indeed small businesses to go, do you know what, we think we can downsize and, you know, have a co-working space or we can save office costs in some way. We're against that, right? I think that is why you end up in this bizarre situation of a Conservative Party that instead of just like, no, 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 you must have this large office cost, you must go in and ri- and risk getting ill, or if you're a business getting sued by your employers during a novel pandemic, then we as yet have no reliable cure. And although palliative treatments are more advanced than they were, you know, when we went into lockdown, they are still uh, some way off from being able to render it acute. I think all of that is kind of why... We're in this slightly weird situation. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's emblematic of the wider picture of the government's response to this so far, which is which you've written very well about before, which is how it's sort of like, you know, they did do these massive interventions and they were quick to act. And the furlough scheme has been, you know, very popular with businesses and workers alike. And the Eat Out to Help Out scheme had a lot of success. You know, they've, they've done these quite radical quite fast things to try and help people but it but the underlying rhetoric has always been a suggestion that they think that this is a sort of one-off blast over a few months in summer mainly and then it will go away once they're back in Westminster and everything's gone back to normal everyone will go back to normal with them and we'll pretend that this never happened and you know we'll never make you sort of do anything we'll never we'll never have to think outside the box in terms of policy again that's the impression that I get from them with this sort of slightly sort of pathetic desperate pleas for people to speak to their employees speak to their employers about how safe it is to go back to the office why is the onus on people to do that you know you know workers will do what is best for them and their families and what will mean that they can carry on earning a wage so if you can work from home and your employer is happy with it and it means that you get to spend more time with your children or you have to be with your children because they're not in school yet then you're going to do that aren't you if your employer is not telling you otherwise and of course then you have the other side the flip side which is how uncomfortable clearly this conservative government would feel about telling employers to do to do the thing rather than begging employees to do it and that's where you get that tension there because obviously they 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 don't feel interventionist enough to try and to try and make businesses have people back in the office. And I know I've said this before, but it shows that there was a very limited time period or a limited sort of box within which the Conservative government's radical thinking happened in terms of its response to the pandemic, because it can't really see a long-term way 
of, you know, catching up with already reforming and modernising working practices, which which was happening before the virus. So it's just another example of how very conservative this, this government is, because it really can't see a way of restructuring the norms of the labour market or the norms of, of employment and the workplace after this, even though that's obviously the natural conclusion of what both employers and employees have discovered who have been working from home and working remotely, that it can work. I think you hit on a, a real kernel of truth there, Anush, when you when you were talking about how they are implicitly hoping that with this return to Westminster and everyone being back in Parliament, that everything will return to normal. Because your first question was, why is the government doing this messaging about returning to the office in the way that it is? And I really think that that's a big part of it, that the people in government and in Downing Street have been almost uniquely unaffected by this preference for working from home. I think apart from the depths of lockdown, all the people working in number 10 have been working there pretty consistently. I mean, I mean, they, they have their own kind of herd immunity going on in there, having got it so early on. And so I think that the way they are working is quite profoundly different from most office workers across the UK. And I think when you team that and their personal experience and their kind of need when they're working, they're still basically in crisis mode, managing, you know, the, the economic crisis, the health crisis. Brexit down the line they're in crisis mode and it makes sense for them all to be in the office working together at some kind of a social distance but when you team that with I mean I suppose everyone is but they are really really worried about the state of the economy and what's going to happen with the furlough scheme in the months to come and huge job losses the job losses at Pret or whatever and 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 more profoundly the the kind of scarring effect that this will have on British high streets for decades to come it's that that's leading to this kind of panicked messaging that people need to return to the office. But as you say, it isn't really coupled. It's exactly the same as with the quarantine measures that we were talking about last week, Anush, that the messaging isn't really reinforced or underpinned by any meaningful policy changes. I mean, just asking employees to ask their employers if they can go back to the office is like totally inadequate and totally meaningless because it, like, this will come from employers. You can even see Matt Hancock was asked about this recently and he as health secretary has different priorities and he was really keen not to fall into the trap of telling the interviewer how many people in his department are are back in the office because people are making a particular point of how many civil servants are back on Whitehall in person. Matt Hancock was just making the point that people are working well from home and they're working productively and you know as long as they can do their jobs well from home he doesn't have a problem with where they're doing it from but yeah I think it's it's just another one of these ones where I think implicitly the onus is on the individual and it's it's laying the groundwork for some quite gloomy headlines in the coming months and sort of laying the groundwork for implicitly blaming those people for not returning in their droves to offices that sort of every individual has a part to play in our economic recovery it goes the line so if you're not doing your bit by going into the office in person you're playing your part in the economic damage of, of the months to come I mean there are lots there are lots that you both said I thought were very interesting but the thing you said Nish, about how this shows how conservative they are with a small c I think one of the really fascinating things about this crisis right is in 
September, October, November, December, January of, of you know, 2019, 2020, you'd speak to both Conservatives who were no longer MPs because they'd either gone, do you know what, I can't be bothered to swallow my principles, I'm just going to pivot to the private sector, or ones who were forced out because they'd lost the whip, or indeed ones who are still in Parliament going, God, this is suboptimal. The thing they would basically say is, these people aren't Conservatives, with a big C. And the thing that, you know, the sense that Downing Street has of itself, right, and, you know, that, like, you know, is visible in, like, you know, Dom Cummings, you know, sort of self-regarding blogs, is that they're not conservatives, they're disruptors. And it is just so fascinating to me that, like, the first bit of disruption, they're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> we're not into that at all. And as you say, Alvaro, it is all about this kind of, like, oh, things are going to go back to normal, we'll urge people to return. And I think, like, the weird thing is, right, I am someone who would like to be able to go back to an office as normal, not least because, as I think both of you have had, you know, unfortunate direct experience of, when I'm not in an office, I can't, like, on column day, be like, I think this is rubbish, could you have a look at it and pass my laptop physically to one of my colleagues, because my laptop is now a disease vector. So, like, the slight weirdness is that in, I think this kind of really comes across in kind of like government outriders making the case for office working and just like where they like describe a bunch of very real benefits to office workers, none of which exist in a world with social distancing. It's just like, oh, you can have an impromptu meeting. It's just like, yeah, if you had a lot of impromptu meetings through like plastic sheet when you're two metres away, yeah, like, oh, you can like have a creative like coming together. And it's just like, no, you're literally, for, you know, you're literally incapable of having a creative coming together and it's just like I just think it is one of the most you obviously there's always a gap between a government's perception of itself and how it actually is but I think usually that happens over years and I think the fascinating thing about this pandemic is that I think those of us who were a bit suspicious that in reality the government's like spin about how you know we're disruptive a hard rain's gonna fall we're really tough and like it's posture to the country of the NHS is great, immigration is bad, taxes are bad, cuts are bad, debt is bad, then ultimately the kind of pandering would always win out over the disruption. And I think it's really striking that what we've seen is the pandering, yeah, is essentially is that, that being borne out. But I think the other kind of subplot, of course, is that this does bring us back to like the economic question, which is this budget that is kind of being already heavily trailed as being incredibly painful in the sort of late autumn. And the kind of question I keep asking myself is like, is a government which feels it can't weather this disruption really actually going to raise fuel duty, cut public spending, increase taxes on, I mean, that's on the rich, but indeed on anybody? I just don't buy it. I just don't see how the November fiscal event will not just be an utter rolling catastrophe. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think you can always tell whenever they threaten to lift the fuel duty freeze, which happens, you know, I feel like I remember that in, in recent history that they often sort of try and float the idea. And you can tell that they're doing it because they, they brief it out long before the actual budgets, you know, even being talked about just to kind of see just to float the idea and put the feelers out and see how sort of vitriolic and aggressive the responses from the right right wing papers and and also backbench Tory MPs and then you know it's so terrifying that then they then they don't do it or their budget is much meeker in terms of trying to raise taxes than 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 is suggested by what they've briefed out and this is I think today's story about 
the potential fuel duty rise by as much as 5p. You know, that's another example of this kind of method. Let's just put it out there. See if see if people have see if people have sort of moved along in any way to become any more sympathetic towards tax rises over this this odd period of politics that we've had. Oh no, oh no, it's the same old reaction from the Mail and the Sun. Okay, we won't do it. You know, I mean, obviously that's me predicting something and when I predict something on this podcast, <laughs> it doesn't often play out. So perhaps that won't be the case, but I do think that they'll have a big struggle on their hands to do anything particularly different from previous sort of conservative run treasuries in recent years because of that very reason because they're so conservative another example of that in terms of the kind of trying to get people back into into offices theme is that this government build itself not only as disruptors and tough and a heavy rain shall fall but also leveling up and rebalancing the economy and focusing on people who have been left behind in areas that are outside of metropolitan centers and you know surely just trying to shoehorn everyone back into that model of commuting into city centres again, it runs contrary to that because there's already evidence that people working from home is reviving local suburban high streets to some degree, independent shops and cafes that are nearby to your home where you pop out to for a coffee or a sandwich. Those kind of streets, probably given changes to the way that our high streets are are run and, and the economic model on which they run in terms of the way that councils work with them as well, given some reforms, as well as this new trend in people working from home, that could be a true revival of suburban high streets. But they obviously, you know, they can't make that mental leap, even though they've built themselves as these people who want to rebalance the economy. It's interesting, your your analysis of the fuel duty thing. I mean, I agree with both of you that I, I can't see the November budget being anything other than a catastrophe. And if we're already having pre-budget briefings that are quite hostile to Rishi Sunak and causing him a lot of bother now on the 1st of September, I can only really imagine that it's just going to get worse over the coming months, even though there'll be new stories about schools coming back and universities coming back and so on. But I do think that, that like just how on earth he's meant to tackle the impending or like the ongoing economic crisis that is only getting worse is, is going to be really tricky for the government. But it's interesting in that that you read the the fuel duty leaks as an attempt to kind of float the idea in the public and, and, and basically float it by right-wing newspapers and see how it lands. Because I think it, it just raises an interesting question about the, the purpose of leaks, because I suppose they have multiple possible origins and possible objectives and it's always hard to read what is going on with them but my reading on it was more that rather than kind of trailing it to see how it lands it was more a sort of hostile briefing to kind of kill it off a bit like so I think with the aid budget one I think it is an example of floating it to see if it works and then the backlash is bad because that would clearly you know that was definitely briefed as a positive story to the sun but then there has been backlash from the from the right of the Tory party. There are so many Conservative MPs closer to the centre um, who for various reasons are very personally attached and very personally invested in the UK government's aid work. You know, there are lots of Tory women who are really invested in education for women and girls. There are, you know, people with a particular foreign policy interest who are interested in the soft power that the aid budget brings. So I think the aid budget one was trying to float it and see how that would land. And I think they thought that that would be welcomed, but it's it has seen a backlash from just the centre of the party. But I think maybe 
with the tax hikes one and the fuel duty one that's people briefing against Rishi Sunak so basically maybe if he had brought it in in the budget it would be unpopular but that but it would be too late but by floating it at this stage and prompting such a backlash from Tory MPs um it'll basically give Rishi Sunak very little room to actually do it I mean from speaking to Tory MPs they all seem to think that fuel duty you know ending that 10-year freeze on it and um, and raising it would be the most obvious tax rise but it's still not very popular with them so I don't know whether that will work or not but I definitely just think we're we're going to see hostile briefings against Rishi Sunak where things that they are looking at that, that won't necessarily be popular are briefed out quite early and they see a really hostile backlash from different parts of the Tory party different like sections of the public from the Tory base and then by the time we get to November I don't really know what will be left and there some of the um, more unpopular ones will still have to be implemented probably unless unless you know the budget is just going to contain nothing yeah I think these you're right these briefings can definitely be used to flush out unpopular ideas before they've even had a chance to take root because I think I suspect, you know, obviously I don't know where other gens get think, but I suspect that actually a thing which leaks from multiple sources, right? Then ultimately, like, Rishi Sunak is serious about the climate stuff, right? That is something that has been very clear for a l- long time, that lots of people, you know, kind of, you know, like various sort of like bits of, of the sector and various local government leadership, including ones which are quite hostile to the government, come away from it going, actually, no, he, he does get that, like, the fuel duty freeze is at once like a central plank of the kind of Cameron Osborne re-elect, you know, sort of the tentpole without which the last decade of conservative economic, political economics could not have worked. And also like an utter disaster that has delayed and, and actively retarded the um, development of you know, the kind of greener energy that we need. But at the same time, I feel you talk to mo- the average, the median Conservative MP, you talk to them about the fuel duty freeze and they'll go, we shouldn't have done it. But if we hadn't done it, I wouldn't be an MP and I will fight to prevent and make sure that we keep doing it. And so I think like with stuff like the fuel duty freeze, it's leaking sums up why it's so politically difficult, right? In the, what is the thing that has caused multiple people to kind of come away and sort of happily brief than like Rishi Sunak is serious on climate change. It's that they think he gets and the fuel duty freeze needs to end. What is the thing that causes someone to hostilely brief than the fuel duty freeze might need to end? Well, then Rishi Sunak believes in, then it was said to believe that this budget needs to be the point where they get the debt to GDP ratio under, start to get it under control. Yeah, at least prevent it continuing to go upwards. And then one of the levers you would obviously pull in that situation is to end the fuel duty freeze. And that, of course, causes a bunch of those people to go, well, I'm going to brief and that shouldn't happen. But I think it kind of, what it typifies is that ultimately, particularly if one doesn't assume, and I mean, yeah, obviously, I think that the promise is not to increase income tax, value-added tax, and the other one, which currently escaped me, were very foolish. But if you've sort of made a point of tying your hands fiscally, you're really, like, you're kind of only really left with things like the fuel duty freeze. And, and so I think, yeah, it just it just does speak to what, as you say, Alva, I can't work out how the, the cupboard either won't be bare or, or toxic by the end. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us So our question today is from Peter Thanks for writing in what effect does the BBC have on UK politics and how could this change if Conservatives manage to damage it or a UK Fox News style channel is launched? I'm going to have a really uncharitable take, which is how would we be able to tell? Let's take kind of the most recent example that is irritating me, right? Which is, so, obviously I take the view that Twitter is largely irrelevant, but on a weekend it becomes irrelevant and also, you know, more rancid, right? So the pop musician Adele posted a picture of herself with, Banticurls and a bikini in the style of the Jamaican flag as kind of to mark the fact that Carnival, which obviously did not happen because of, of COVID-19, would have happened this week, which is obviously like perfectly fine and uh, was treated as perfectly fine by the overwhelming majority of British people on Twitter. And indeed, right, there is no evidence and it is representative of anything other than being part of the small but distressingly vocal minority of people who like to kind of flirt with and indeed some weekends actively say that they just think miscegenation is bad right like it is like it is the direct not even i was like the direct cousin right in some cases the overlap is exactly the same people who say that you know you're selling out if you're a black woman and you wear a weave or you know that like i shouldn't like listen to classical music or whatever right it's just people saying miscegenation is bad right and like everyone who has a platform who we might consider a serious figure in the United Kingdom, David Lammy, Naomi Campbell, everyone who we might consider like someone who you might think of as newsworthy as like, yeah, you know, fair play to her. Bikini looks great on her, etc., etc. And yet somehow we have a situation where the closest to a prominent person saying they have a problem with this is um, someone on the Forbes 30 under 30 from the United States who has done... LBC, the BBC, has been quoted on the, you know, on Sky News's website, a story which they saw fit to push notification me on the weekend. Push notifications are something I swear used to be resigned for, like, market-moving events and the death of, like, prime ministers, but now it's apparently, like, some people on Twitter have had said, said something a bit out there. And I just think, like, and I say this as someone who supports the principle of public sector broadcasting, but I just think that a lot of this discourse seems to assume the existence of a BBC which does not exist, right? Like, this idea that the BBC is against or a 
sort of a break on the kind of like sensationalist, like let's get two talking heads who don't know much about this subject to shout at each other in a very entrenched way. Right? They're committed to the like the disco and the shouting match, even in the era of social distancing, when it like if it to the extent it ever worked at theatre, it sure as hell doesn't work as theatre now. I just don't buy then things would be that different. And I think like a long chunk of the kind of conservative angst towards the BBC is its kind of cultural liberal bias, which you can kind of sort of probably sum up best by looking at some of its like quite rubbish panel shows, like say like Mock the Week, right? Where, you know, like it's like the height of satire to be like Lolol, Eric Pickles is fat, Lolol, the Tories, am I right? Now, I can see how if you're a conservative that is annoying, but do you know what, in terms of like the actual substance of the media, it's not that important and it's, you know, I think it's a dying format anyway. I think in terms of a, a Fox News in the UK, I think there are two kind of questions I have on top of the how would it be different from what we have now, which is one, in terms of how Ofcom regulations work, I'm not quite clear how you would get a full-on Fox News. But equally importantly, it's not really clear to me that there's actually a viable audience for one. How is it going to make money, right? Like, yeah, Sky News makes money as part of kind of a bundle of other services, but as a freestanding entity, it it doesn't make money, and I don't really, or doesn't make very much, right? I don't, I just, I just don't buy it, right? Like ultimately, like there was cultural conservatism and that kind of loud, throffy stuff before there was Fox News. I just don't quite buy it. What is its business model, and also what is its regulatory model? I just don't see how it would be different. Yeah, I do agree with you that there is a similarity with what our questioner, the kind of media landscape our questioner is positing with the current reality, because you kind of see you see this kind of idea of UK Fox News style broadcast output you know, already existing on very mainstream programmes and platforms. So, you know, you have... Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain kind of giving his own sort of right-leaning populist take on the sort of stories of the day. And then you have a lot of the kind of these kind of culture wars debates that like the one you you mentioned debated on on the radio, like talk radio, for example, with presenters like Julia Hartley Brewer, who, you know, who managed to do these kind of um, debate segments about topics like that. And then you also have the range of different presenters who are forthright and open about their, their own political stances on LBC as well. So we've already got a sort of media landscape where you can tune in to hear presenters' opinions that may run counter to your own or, or counter to what you would characterise as, as, as liberal or, or whatever um, the conservative criticism of the BBC is. So I do think we already have that mix. And then, of course, on top of that, you do have our mainstream n- newspaper, the like print press as well, aside from broadcasters, which does lean to the right as well. So I do think that the idea that we've got this sort of the classic sort of Tory criticism of the BBC, that it's this sort of monolithic liberal mouthpiece that doesn't give that much um, sort of leeway to other opinions. I don't think that that criticism sort of makes much sense if you if you think about the, the media landscape as a whole, in the same way that it doesn't really make much sense, the idea that we could have a sort of viable 
Fox News equivalent in the UK either. So I do think we already kind of have that already. And and with this new director general who's coming in today, one of the main headlines from him coming into the role is that he's set to tackle perceived left-wing comedy bias on, on the BBC. So I guess the idea is those kind of panel shows where they make fun of Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party's latest policies. Sometimes they'll even have people on from the party and make fun of them in person. I suppose the idea is to try and bring some more diversity to that format. But that, again, you know, that that ignores the fact that we have had a Conservative-led government for a very long time, since 2010. So I guess if you're tuning into comedy that scrutinises politics or policy, then it's going to be it's going to be anti the government of the day because they're the one, ones who make the policies. So I suppose that's a little bit misguided as well. So it really does depend, I think, well, critiques of the BBC really do depend on, on the government of the day and the kind of political landscape in general as well. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I'm not sure if, if the premise of the question, you know, is necessarily that different from what we have now. My response would be slightly different to the two of yours in that my gut feeling is that there are parts of the, of the BBC that are quite important for the way we talk about politics in this country and that the the loss of it would be quite severe which I think is what Stephen means when he talks about the principle of public service journalism like we're on the same page with that that the principle of objective reporting on the political events of the day that is for everybody regardless of their political affiliation I think is a quite important one especially when the political affiliation of most organisations is kind of understood by most people and people tend to read the journalism of, of outlets that they broadly agree with and and you know consider unsubscribing if they stop agreeing with certain aspects of that coverage I do think that the principle of getting your news to be informed and to just better understand what's going on rather than, than to have your, your worldview reflected back to you is a quite important one. Like your worldview is for you, but it doesn't need to be in how you get your news. And if anything, you want as many facts and you want reporting that tells you what the thinking is of, of the Conservatives, of the government, of Labour, different parts of Labour, of the Lib Dems, of, of the SNP in Scotland, you know, what different parts of the Tory base are thinking. I think you want, you want reporting that just helps you understand it. And I think at least that's what the BBC in theory is trying to do. But I think my, my other feeling is that it's kind of too difficult to talk about the BBC as one thing because... You know, even even in our answers to this question, you have to take a, a, a specific aspect of the BBC at a time because it's just such a huge organisation that there are different parts that you can criticise. So there's like the comedy aspect. There's the, the way political debate is set up, you know, the kind of the talking heads thing where you get people f- from you know, to kind of, con- you know, to take two different controversial talking points and to sort of shout at each other and get the people riled up. I think that's obviously, like, not a very good model for political debate and that's a problem with the BBC's coverage. But I think, you know, I still think of the BBC as the model for reporting is not a bad one. And I think that the kind of reporting modelled by places like Newsnight is still really, really excellent. And I take take your points on board, both of you, but I think... I would worry about a situation where 
people aren't getting their news from the same place at all anymore and that and the, we live in an increasingly fractured society where there isn't even one public conversation that it's different outlets speaking to different people and that all of the problems that we see in British society at the moment with you know some groups of people charging way ahead on social issues and and you know being much much more progressive or up to date on certain things and other people falling like way behind or not being kept up to speed I think I would just sort of worry if if we didn't even try to have a news outlet that united those people that we would be the worse off for it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.